0: Thank you for being here with us this morning as we come together and celebrate what the Lord has done in our lives through salvation, through bringing us together, that we can worship together. It's a good day that we can be together, that we can worship freely, and we can have fellowship with one another. Uh, we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me through there. If you don't have your Bible, you've got a phone Pull it up, Philippians 1.27, uh, and I'm going to pray, and then we'll get started. Lord, we thank you that we can come to you, Lord, that we can come bearing nothing, bringing nothing, and receiving everything. Lord, you have promised that eternity with you, our salvation is a free gift that we cannot gain or achieve or acquire outside of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, Lord, you've also given us your Holy Spirit, not only to lead the biblical writers like Paul to write the things that you wanted for the church in Philippi, but also for us. Lord, but you've given us your spirit, that your spirit indwells us. That that was a promise that Christ gave that that when he left a spirit would come, and your spirit comes and has now brought comfort and peace that we know through the conviction what you want us to do, how you want us to live. And so we ask that this word today that you have for us would bring conviction to our hearts, it bring encouragement to our lives, that we can continue to make our lives more like Christ. Lord, knowing that there are many Christians around the world, our missionaries included, who are in different regions and in different environments certainly many with opponents and many with people that are standing in front of them as opposition. We ask that you would smooth their ways, that you would open doors for the gospel, that you would lead them to green pastures, that they would have a visible hope of the work that you're doing around the world in their lives and in the lives of the people that they come in contact with. Pray that you would give them boldness to speak when they are to speak, wisdom to stay quiet when they are to stay quiet, but ultimately a, a perseverance in what you've called them to do. And we ask that same thing for us, that we would be bold to speak of the good news that we have, the gospel of faith, the truth that we know because of your word and because of your spirit, and that you would give us that confidence to boldly proclaim that there is no other name under heaven given among men, by which we must be saved, as the name of Christ, in whose name we pray, Amen. All right. Well, you'll remember we're in Philippians, and this was Paul writing from Rome under house arrest in the early AD 60s. He's writing to the church at Philippi, and the church at Philippi was not originally, well, the city of Philippi was not originally a Roman city, it was a Greek city, and Mark Antony and Octavius came in, and they conquered the city, and they made Philippi a Roman colony. Now, being a Roman colony came with Roman privileges. The people living in Philippi became Roman citizens, which brought its own level of prestige, and the city of Philippi would now be protected by Rome. Philippi sat right in the middle of what they called the Via Ignatia, which was a long Roman road that stretched east-west across a big area so that the Roman soldiers could quickly and easily travel to all parts of the kingdom. Now, when, Roman, uh, when the Roman military would conquer a city, it didn't always become a colony like Philippi did. Philippi was designated with that status as a colony because of this war that had gone on between Mark Antony, Octavius, and Brutus, and Cassius when they conquered it. And so they wanted to designate a special title for Philippi, and so they called it Little Rome. And that was a picture of what the Romans thought of Philippi. They wanted Philippi to be a special city. In addition to just being a special city, having citizenship within the Roman Empire carried a lot of power. You remember Paul, a couple different times, defends himself by appealing to his Roman citizenship. You know, you, you shouldn't be doing this if I were a Roman citizen, right? And the guy asked him, well, I bought my citizenship, where did you get yours? And so Paul has often used his Roman citizenship to leverage something that he was looking for. Let's go ahead and read the passage and we'll keep going kind of with that idea. So Philippians chapter one, starting in verse 27, says, just one thing, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation. And this is from God. For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had, and now here that I have. So in this passage here, Paul has a few different words that have a very heavy military connotation to them that the Philippian church would have understood in their military context. So when Philippi became a colony, one of the benefits of it being a colony and not just part of or a state of Rome was that military personnel who had retired could go and live on, in any of the Roman colonies? Many Roman veterans from the retired from the Roman military chose Philippi. It was a wealthy area, it was near the coast, and there was a lot of international traffic that came through Philippi, so it was a very desirable place to live. So, with that in mind, Paul uses a few different words that probably to him and to them carried that same military understanding. And Paul says five different things that we'll read that we can kind of have an expectation that even a a military general might say to his soldiers. So the five things that Paul says is, number one, to live for a higher calling, to live in a way That is beyond yourself. The second one is to stand firm in unity. The third, contend together. The fourth, don't be afraid. And the fifth, expect to suffer. We can imagine a a military general telling his soldiers this isn't about you, this is about Rome. We're living and fighting, not for you, but for Rome. So stand together, contend together, fight for one another, and don't be afraid, but there will be opponents. That's what Paul has essentially told the church in Philippi. His big picture idea here is that we are to live a life worthy of the gospel because we are citizens, Or say it in reverse, since we are citizens of heaven, we are to live a life that is worthy of the gospel. So starting with that idea of citizenship, Paul says just one thing, as citizens of heaven. And that would have been important to Philippi because they were citizens, but they were citizens of Rome. And Roman citizenship came with a lot of benefits. It offered legal protection, citizens of Rome, could appeal to Caesar. They could demand a fair trial. They could choose not to be tortured because they were Roman citizens. Roman citizenship also had political privileges. They were able to vote. They were able to hold office. It also came with social benefits. Citizens were a separate class of people. So citizens were above non-citizens and slaves in the social hierarchy. They also got certain tax exemptions. Citizens of Rome also had personal freedoms. They were able to travel freely throughout the Roman Empire, and they were able to marry other Roman citizens. So Paul has this idea in mind that the Philippian church, most of them were Roman citizens, And yet Paul tells them, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel. So Paul has this contrast. There's a lot of benefits from being a Roman citizen, but that's not what Paul cares about. Paul says just one thing, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel. It's a dual citizenship, but a single alliance, a single allegiance To Christ. When citizenship comes in contrast with one another, a Roman citizenship and a heavenly citizenship, there can only be allegiance to one. At some point, those two things hit each other and there's contrast. So when that happens, Paul wants them to know that you are citizens, first of all, of heaven— If Rome asks you to do something that God has asked you not to do, you are citizens of heaven. However, if the Roman citizenship benefits you like it does Paul, or if there's reasons that grant you access to other things, you can be Roman citizens on earth, but your primary allegiance is as a citizen of heaven. And as a citizen of heaven the contrast of the earthly versus the eternal, being a citizen of heaven has evidence. As citizens of heaven, there should be evidence of our citizenship. As citizens of heaven, with our hope in heaven, not on earth, there should be evidence. Our life should prove what our words say. Our actions should prove what we claim. And in the same way, when you pledge your allegiance to a nation, you're pledging with your words, and the nation expects that your actions will back that up. As we pledge our allegiance as citizens of heaven, our actions should back up our words. And there's also a hope. When we are citizens of heaven, we have an expectation that the citizenship of earth, our home on earth, will one day fade away, will one day be gone. And yet, our citizenship in heaven will always remain. Now, this brings us to a crossroads because we live in a very earthly culture, A lot of things that come at you every day bring earthly citizenship. The things of earth are always in your face no matter what you're doing. So when those things come, whatever they may be, is your citizenship with those things or is your citizenship in heaven? Because the way you respond to temptation, or the way you respond to cultural pressure or peer pressure that goes against a citizenship of heaven, against living a worthy life, how you respond proves where your citizenship really is. When we know the right thing to do and we choose to do it, we are saying, my citizenship is heaven. When we know the right thing to do by God's standards and we choose not to do it, we're fighting that battle of dual citizenship. So Paul is saying with that idea of being citizens of heaven, here's just one thing. It's verse 27. Just one thing. As citizens of heaven, this is what Paul says is the primary focus. So here, Paul's primary focus, just one thing, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is Paul's driving focus throughout this whole passage. If you are citizens of Christ, or citizens of heaven, then live your life worthy of the gospel. Another way to say it is, if you are citizens of heaven, or since you are citizens of heaven, live like Jesus. If that is where we are going, if he has gone ahead to prepare a place for us, if he has promised that those who believe in him will one day be with him in heaven, if our citizenship is in heaven, then we should live in the way that he's called us to live. Having that focus of a life that is worthy of the gospel means that the gospel, the good news, the God's spell, God's message of Christ paying for our sins on the cross, that good news should penetrate all parts of our life. It should work its way into all of our actions all of our decisions and even our interactions with other people. If we are living as citizens of heaven, then our life should have the gospel saturated into it. You've used WD-40. It's what WD-40 does. It, It soaks in, it breaks the rust. It gets rid of the creaks and the crankiness. It allows you to to take hold of the habits and loosen them enough where you can get rid of them, the gospel penetrates into our lives and changes us. That's what Paul is saying. Just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel. And he continues, then, so now, since you're doing that, then, verse, the end of verse 27, whether I come to you or I, and see you, or I'm absent, I will hear about you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, and contending together for the faith of the gospel. So Paul says two things, and then the next verse he says, and not being frightened. So he kind of gives these three ideas. The first one is that he will hear about them, if he can't come and see it, he will at least hear about that they are doing this, that they are standing firm in one spirit and in one accord. The word here that Paul uses for standing firm is a Greek word, stakontis. And you're familiar, probably, whether you know it or not, with an ancient battle called the Battle of Thermopylae. And in the Battle of Thermopylae, there was a narrow pass, and on one side of the pass was a thick wooded area. It was mountainous and it was very difficult terrain. On the other side of this narrow pass was an inlet that was wet and marshy and impossible to pass. So all of the ways to get through this one area to either get to the other countries or get from the other countries had to go through this narrow pass or hundreds of miles around the mountain range. So through this narrow pass, there was once a military battle, a lot of military battles, but one that stood out in history, and it was written about by a guy named Herodotus, the only historian that wrote about this, and he sourced as much as he could and wrote a couple hundred years after the fact The battle that we know it is when the Spartans came to defend Sparta from the Persians? I don't know, from somebody. I think it was the Persians. I don't remember. But the Spartans took their stand here at the Battle of Thermopylae at this pass. The word that Herodotus used was stichontis. And he said this, this is how he said it. Having taken up a position... Stacantis, they must die there and do no more. The Spartans defended themselves to the death with swords if they had them, and if not, with their hands and teeth. Having taken up a position, they were ready to die, ready to defend this position. That they were ready to stand firm, even if it meant attacking with their teeth. That's the word that Herodotus uses to say the Spartans stood their ground, that they stood firm. It's the same word that Paul uses that he says, when I come to see or whether I hear about you, what I will hear is that you are standing firm that you are now an impassable terrain, that there's no way to get past you because you have stood firm, if necessary, to the death. And that's what Paul is saying is that the Christians here would stand firm. But that's not all he says. Look at the text. I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord. They are together standing firm, like the Spartans would have. One guy standing firm by himself cannot stop a 10,000-plus person army. But standing firm together is a picture of unity. That's what Paul has here, is this idea of one spirit and in one accord. We've signed one contract, we have one purpose, and we are working for one goal. It's a picture of unity. And a picture of unity on earth is a picture of unity in heaven. When Paul says, in one spirit and in one accord, he goes deeper into that in Ephesians chapter 4, when he says that there is one body, the body of Christ that we are one and part of, and there's one spirit, the Holy Spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling— the hope in Christ, one Lord, Jesus, one faith, faith in him, one baptism in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. Paul is saying that there is a unity on earth that Christians have that reflects the unity that Christians will have in heaven. Whatever nation, whatever language, whatever skin color, whatever time in history, Christians will forever in heaven have one spirit and in one accord. Now, Paul is telling them to do that now, to today have one spirit and one accord. Living in unity is a picture of heaven's unity Us as Christians living in unity is a picture of God being able to reconcile us, to bring us together as one. People that were different, now being together. People that spoke different languages, now being together. People that had different things that they liked, nothing in common. Finding unity in one spirit and in one accord. Having unity is a picture of unity in heaven. And having unity is a sign. It's a a demonstration. It gives evidence that we are believers in Jesus. Now, I want to ask you, maybe before I ask you, unity requires intentionality. Rarely do we find that we can just get two random people together and sit them down and they will have lots of things in common. More often, we can get two people together. They'll like different things. They'll live different places. They'll have different histories. They'll have different expectations, different hopes. There's a lot of things that divide us. And unity requires us to be intentional. It requires that we strive for it, that we stand firm in one spirit with one accord, because that's not what comes naturally to us. We are naturally divided because we look different and we sound different and we like different things and we care about different things and our opinions on political matter, matters or socioeconomic matters. Everything that we look at, we often find more disunity than unity. And so Paul is saying that we would have one spirit and one accord. So to live a life worthy of the gospel is explained by standing firm in one spirit and in one accord. So my question, is there somebody in your life with whom you do not have unity? Somebody In the church, the broad church, whether they are in this church or as Christians in another church body, is there someone that you do not have unity with? Unity is a picture of what God wants. It's a picture of the Trinity being one, John 17, Jesus says, when he prays his high priestly prayer, he prays that we, as those who would come, would have unity. The New Testament is littered with talking about unity. But when that hits home, it means you do something to strive to live in one accord and in one spirit. That often means that we have to go out of our way. That often means that we have to say very special words that are sometimes very difficult to say. I'm going to give you the very special words, and you don't want to say them. I know that already. The very special words that cause unity are as follows, I have done, fill in the blank, whatever you've done or whatever you've said or whatever the offense was, I am sorry. Will you forgive me? And those words bring unity because you've done something wrong. I know you've done something wrong because you're sinful people. I know because I stand here with you as a sinful person. We do things wrong all the time. I said those words to both my son and my wife this week. I'm sorry for doing whatever it is that I've done. Will you forgive me? And those words are healing for the other person. They then often will extend to you, yes, I forgive you. And it's a verbal confirmation that I'm not holding this against you anymore. You've done something, you've apologized, you're trying to make it right, I forgive you. Now let's stand firm in one spirit and in one accord. Those words, apologizing and asking for forgiveness, are a big deal. If you don't do one, the other one lacks meaning. And if you just do one, then the former lacks meaning. So having those things together, a recognition of what you've done, an apology that involves the word sorry, a regretful, remorseful idea, and asking for forgiveness brings unity between Christian people. And that unity is what Paul is talking about when he's saying that we stand It's what he said in Ephesians, that there's one body and one spirit. We were called to one hope through one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. It's the picture of us as a group being one for something that matters a lot more than we do individually. It's living a life that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. So he says to stand firm in one spirit and in one accord. And he continues and he says, contending together for the faith of the gospel. Contending together is two Greek words. It's sin, S-Y-N, which means with. And it's athleo, which we get athletics. And it's this idea of being together with someone on a team or being together with someone striving for a common purpose. When I was in Awana, and if you don't bring your kids to Awana on Wednesday night, it's a great time. The kids play games, memorize Bible verses. They get to have a great time, uh, sixth grade and under. So kindergarten through sixth grade. Oh, we have cubbies too. So third, uh, three-year-olds through sixth grade. They have a fun time. They play games. My favorite competition in Awana was always called the three-legged race. And you would stand shoulder to shoulder with someone else, and you'd put your leg together with their leg, and you'd tie a Velcro strap around it. So now the two of you have three legs, essentially, and you have to learn to walk in a very awkward way. And to win, you have to learn to run in a very awkward way that becomes natural. It feels natural after you've done it for a second. And that's the idea that Paul has here, Sineleo, where we are bringing together two people who are going the same place. They want the same thing. He says that we are contending together. And that's that idea is that we are looking forward to the same thing. We desire the same thing. Living a life worthy of the gospel is standing firm in one accord in one spirit and contending together for the faith faith of the gospel. Us as Christians, strapping ourselves together and saying, That's where we should go because that's what it looks like to live a worthy life for the faith of the gospel. Now, Paul's picture is kind of this idea of a team sport, not like basketball is today, but a team sport that requires everybody together and they all move toward the same goal. But it's not just any goal. Right, we have a lot of civic organizations that people come together with a common hobby or a common intention, and they will move together. But look what Paul says. He says, contending at the end of verse 27, contending together for the faith of the gospel. These people, us people, are strapping ourselves together together For the faith of the gospel. That we together will contend, strive for the faith of the gospel. And when we do that, when we stand firm in one spirit and one accord, and when we contend together for the gospel, we show the unity that we have in Christ. That we all came to Christ as sinners... And Christ has given us salvation by his sacrifice on the cross. In Christ, we are all the same. We are not better than or worse than someone else. We are all just sinners who have received grace from God. And we are unified in that. So we are contending for the faith of the gospel. This idea of contending together has the idea of reconciliation. To reconcile means that something has been changed or exchanged. So what the Bible often talks about reconciliation is people that have been reconciled to God, that we have been separated from God because of our sin. And to be reconciled to God means that he has exchanged our sin, given it to Christ, and given us A righteousness, a right standing, a justification before him because of Christ. So our sin has been traded in for a perfect standing before God because of Christ. Look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, just a couple pages back in your Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul has this same idea. Start in verse uh, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. Everything is from God, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed this message of reconciliation to us. God, through Christ, has reconciled us to himself. And then he's given us this message of reconciliation, that we can take this message to others and say, because of your sin, you're separated from God. But through Christ, God has offered you reconciliation, that he wants to bring you back into a perfect relationship with him. That's the message of reconciliation that has been given to us that as Christians, we tell other people. We give them the good news that God has made a way for them to be reconciled. And if we as Christians are not reconciled with one another, the world looks at our message of reconciliation as foolishness. If God can't reconcile these two knuckleheads together, how can he reconcile my sin to himself? How can God, if God can't even simply fix these two people that are fighting, how can God do anything eternal? See, the opposite of unity is disunity, and it's broken. And that's why Paul's focus and intention here. Is that we are contending together for the faith of the gospel. That we have come together in one spirit and in one accord, striving and now contending together for something that is greater than ourselves. That we are contending for the faith of the gospel. And as we do that, there's naturally gonna be opposition, there's naturally gonna be persecution because that's the way Satan works. He doesn't want the things of God. And most people who don't know God don't care for the things of God. It's natural that there's opposition and that's what happens in verse 28. Paul continues on, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation, and this is from God. So the opponents, the sign of destruction is that they are opposing God. Since they are standing and opposing god it's a sign it's a picture of their destruction the word that paul uses here for opponents is another military term it's anti which means against and kemai which is something that's in front of you so it's something in front of you that's against you or something that's set in front of you that's opposing you and that's the word opponents it makes pretty good sense that there's something blocking or antagonizing or persecuting or opposing us. And that's what Paul is saying here is that not being frightened in any way by your opponents. It's a sign of their destruction, and that word destruction often in the Bible has a totality to it. It means like a full destruction that's unable to be recovered from. And that's probably what Paul is meaning here, that opponents of God Will one day face judgment. That the opponents of God, those who stand in opposition to God, will one day suffer a total ruin. But that Christians are to stand firm together, contend together, and not be frightened. It's a sign for them, the opponents, of destruction, but a sign of your salvation. When we are not frightened or scared away or turned around, when we have opponents, whether in a spiritual sense or in a physical sense, somebody is directly opposing what God has, it's a sign of our salvation. And Paul's telling them that this courage, being a sign of your salvation, means that you don't have a reason to fear that we don't have to fear what is before us, that we don't have to fear what somebody else might think of us, that we don't have to worry about what is coming. And that's a big deal too, because when we find our identity in Christ, it means the world loses its power over us. Because we care less about what others think and we care more about what Christ thinks. We've transferred our citizenship from earth to heaven. And if my citizenship is in heaven and my hope is in heaven, there's nothing left that the world can do to me. You remember what Paul had said? Whether by life or by death, Christ will be highly honored in my body. For to me, live is Christ and to die is gain. With our citizenship fixed in heaven, dying is gain and living means that we carry on with what Christ has called us to do. And then Paul closes with this idea in 29 and 30. So living as citizens of heaven, living worthy of the gospel, standing firm, contending together, not being frightened. Verse 29 For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are engaged in the same struggle that I saw you had, that you saw I had, and now hear that I have. So it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. That word granted is gift, which is strange in the context, for it has been a gift to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. When you give me a Christmas gift, please don't give me suffering. Okay, that's not a good gift to give people. If you're going to bestow with kindness, which is what it means, don't bestow on someone the kindness of suffering, right? If you're a miserable person, being with you is suffering for some people, right? Don't be a miserable person. Be cool. But don't give the gift of suffering. And yet that's what Paul is saying. For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only that you believe in him, but also that you suffer for him. This is a gift that you would suffer for Christ, okay? Not only is it a gift that you would suffer for Christ, but this is a gift granted to you on Christ's behalf. So Christ is giving you a gift. The gift is, first of all, that you believe in him. Because if you don't believe, you won't have to deal with the suffering. I mean, earthly suffering, at least. Eternal suffering, yes, but not suffering now. So it's been granted and gifted to you that you first believe and then that you will also suffer for him. But when we think of that idea of suffering as a gift, it kind of changes our perspective on suffering because suffering is not wasted. Suffering is not for nothing. Paul in Romans chapter 3 gives this picture of suffering contributing to our spiritual maturity. And Romans 5, starting in verse 3, says that we rejoice in our afflictions. We rejoice in the suffering and the pain, the problems, because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope, and this hope will not disappoint us. So suffering, afflictions have a purpose. In this one instance, they produce endurance. And you've suffered. And if you come out on the other side of the suffering, next time you look back and you say, okay, that wasn't so bad. When it was standing in opposition to me, it looked bigger than it was. Having gone through the suffering, I know that I can endure that. And endurance produces proven character. Proven character means that when faced with opposition, when faced with suffering, you're confident that God will carry you through that. You have a character that says, I can get through that because I've already proven it. Not on my own, but through Christ. And that's a testament to the rest of the world. That my suffering does not make me like those whose citizenship is on earth. I don't need revenge. I don't despair. I don't lose hope. I don't turn away from everything that I've ever known because I have proven character, and that proven character produces hope. When we suffer, it's for a purpose that God will grow us spiritually, that it's a contrast to what the world has, and then Paul also brings it like all the way home in verse 30. And he says, "'Since you are engaged in the same struggle "'that you saw I had, and now here that I have.'" So the same struggle is probably that he was in prison in Philippi, and now he's in prison in Rome. And so you're engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had in Philippi, and now here that I have, again, being in prison.'" but ultimately being persecuted for one reason, that Paul was telling people about Jesus. So now Paul's saying, since you are engaged in the same struggle that I had, and you now hear that I have, Paul's bringing it together again, that even in this struggle, even in the persecution, even in the opposition, we still have unity, because we're contending together together, not for our own safety, not for our own release from prison, not for our own goodwill, but we are contending together for the gospel. Since you are engaged in the same struggle, Paul's life is lived in a way that tells others, this is what a godly man looks like. This is how a godly man should act. This is how a godly man should endure suffering. And Paul's saying, this is what it looks like, that I suffered, that I was unjustly treated, I was unjustly beaten, I've been in prison for doing nothing actually wrong, and a whole letter was written full of joy to encourage people. A whole letter was written to them to tell them, do what I'm doing, suffer how I'm suffering, endure and stand together. When we have these shared experiences, we can encourage one another. I've been there before. I know what you're dealing with. I know that it's hard. Endure in the same way since you're engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had and now hear that I have. Our response then to suffering, knowing that it's a gift from God, shouldn't be one of fear. It shouldn't be one of frustration. When we suffer and we are suffering for the gospel, when we are persecuted and we lose friends or family or jobs or whatever it might be, when we are persecuted for the gospel, we can count that as a blessing from God, that he has chosen to give us that. And that one day we too might share that experience to encourage someone else, just like Paul does in verse 30. It really puts our faith into perspective. It makes our faith alive when our actions match our words. So in this passage, I wanted to challenge you in the five ways that I mentioned in the beginning. Which of these... Is God asking you to go deeper in your relationship with him and where is God specifically pointing out in your heart giving you conviction that this is what I want you to do? Is it to live for a higher calling? Maybe your life is lived in a very earthly way. Your hope is on earth, your expectations are on earth. If I can just get, or have, or live, or whatever it is that your citizenship is in heaven, then everything will be okay. Maybe God is calling you to put your citizenship in heaven, to recognize that moth and rust will destroy everything, and your citizenship, your expectation, your hope and joy should no longer be here, but should be transferred to heaven, Maybe it's, number two, to stand firm in unity with Christians around you. Maybe it's at your workplace or with your family when a Christian is being persecuted. You know, you can just kind of stand back and not take the brunt of it. Or you can step in and you can align yourself with someone else, finding a way to stand in unity with another Christian. Or maybe it's to strive and contend together for the gospel. To find somebody that together you can do gospel work, that you can have the good news that Christ has given you eternal life, and take that to someone else. But again, both of those things being in unity. Because either one of those things not in unity is not what Paul's talking about. So maybe that means you need to reconcile. Maybe that needs, means you need to ask forgiveness or to offer forgiveness, to be as one. The fourth one, maybe it's fear. Maybe you fear what someone thinks. Maybe you fear what someone can do. And to not have fear, recognizing that when you suffer, it's a gift from God. And so maybe the fifth one is we take joy in our suffering. Instead of trying to avoid it, instead of trying to fight it, instead of trying to get away from it, to just take joy that God has seen fit to grant, gift, bestow in kindness, suffering that we might become more like Christ. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you that you have given us your words through Paul, through the Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray that you would use these words, that we might become more like Christ. Lord, that we would not be hearers only, but we would be doers, knowing that through your Spirit you speak to us, through your word you speak to us. And Lord, may that be enough to captivate our attention to consider what your words might mean to us this day. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.